This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Hello, Tiari Jones. Welcome to Sydney. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, is this your first visit? It is. Yeah. And you've been invited to an international rights festival, really. It's been so exciting, everything that's happened in the last year. I mean, I've never even, I've never been to Australia at all, and then to be invited as a writer? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, isn't it? It is. It's, we're talking about an American marriage. Um, it's not your first novel, though, is it? No, it's my fourth, actually. And it has resonated, though, in a way that readers are embracing it. Um, and do you know why that is? Well, I think it's a combination of factors. Um, one obvious factor is that Oprah Winfrey chose it for her book club. Thank but, you, Oprah. <laughs> yes, I mean, that is the most exciting thing because I'm a person who has never even won a raffle. No. And for, for my book, out of all the books I'm sure she receives that she chose it, it just feels, in many ways, it's a dream come true. Yeah, it is. But, you know, it is a dream come true and it is good luck, but... That only happens when you write something good. Well, you know, it took me seven years to write this book. And I would say half, I would say for the last two of the seven years, I wasn't convinced that I would be able to finish the book because I didn't know that I had, I didn't know if I could, I felt like the conflict was so thorny and the knots were tied so tight. I didn't know if I would be able to free my characters from their, from their conflicts. And it really made me, I made me depressed because I felt like if I can't even in my imagination sort out this problem, what hope is there for people in real life? Yeah, for the reader. Yeah, what hope is there? Okay. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So, um, and how I, I'm really interested to know, um, how your uh, how you came about to write? Well, like many people, I wrote as a child, you know, but right. I didn't know it could be. So where be. did you grow up? I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, so I'm a Southerner, yeah. and I, you know, grew up as a bookish child, like many writers. Nothing terribly interesting about my early years, but what I have. But you're a reader. I was a reader, and but what I came to realize is that as a girl, as a teenager. I like to read and write, but people don't really think that when girls like to read and write, it means you're a writer or an intellectual. They just think it means you're nice. Like when you're a teenager, that's all anyone cares about is whether or not you're a nice girl. And reading was shorthand for a nice girl. And I didn't know that it could be my life's work, my life's calling. And it wasn't until I went to university and I met a writer and she was my teacher. And one day she said to me, you know, what are you thinking about? And I got ready to tell her and she said, no, write it down. And that was the first time I remember myself as really having an audience. Mm. And so I did my, I took so such... So you were writing for her? Yes, because she wanted to know what I was thinking. 
before then, and I was maybe 16 years old when I went to university, I went early, but before then, I was always writing, always reading, and no one ever asked me what I was reading, what I was writing. So when she took me seriously, I learned to take myself seriously. Do you think you have to write for an audience? I think you have to write for an audience of some type, even if it's an imaginary audience. Because, I mean, writing is, it's like speaking. You, I guess you can theoretically talk to yourself, but really when you choose to express a thought, you're expressing it to someone. Mm. Yeah, you are. And if you start speaking to yourself, people might think you're mad. You, and you might be. But I do think that it's, I think it's healthy to speak to an audience as long as your goal is to express yourself authentically to that audience, which is really different than telling that audience what you think it wants to hear. Exactly. That's, you hit the nail on the head. And that, I think, is a difference between good fiction and bad fiction. One of the differences, I think. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So um, so then when did you start writing um, long, you know, you wrote your first book. When was that? I wrote my first book when I was, I started it when I was about 27 or 28 years old. I was in graduate school for creative writing. I had always wanted to go to graduate school for creative writing, but before then I was afraid to because I didn't, I didn't believe that I could do it, and I didn't believe that it could be a real, not a real job, but a... a Well, it is hard to categorise as a real job, because in all the writers, we've spoken to so many writers this week, and a lot of them, it's taken them years to actually describe themselves as a writer. Like, you know, when they're ticking the occupation box... A lot of them are hesitant to do that. It's true because somewhere we've gotten a feeling that if, like sometimes people say, I'll be on a panel with a lot of other writers and one of the questions was, when did you become a full-time writer? And a few of the writers will say, you know, some story how they got brave enough to make writing their full-time job. And I I teach, I'm a professor, I have another job. And when I say, oh, I have a day job, everyone looks disappointed like, oh, poor you, you you weren't good enough to be a full-time writer. But I think that being a writer is not whether or not it is your, your means of support. I think whether or not you're a writer is whether or not you consider this your primary, only not only vocation, but also avocation. Mm, that's a really good point, actually. Okay, so you wrote your first book, um, and when did you decide that that was good enough to share with the world? It, you know, for me, writing my first book, I, it took me maybe a year and a half to write it. I was in school. I had a lot to prove because nobody wanted me to go to school for creative writing. Um, my mother my mother has told me to stop telling the story, so perhaps this will be the last time I tell okay, it. Okay, well, tell us. But my mother said, getting a degree in creative writing, it's like getting a degree in basketball. <laughs> she says, if you are a good basketball player, no one will ever inquire about your credentials for it. And if you cannot play basketball, no one will care if you have a credential. So the credential is irrelevant. That is only your performance. That is, uh, yeah. And that this was a waste of time and money. And I was so afraid of that, that getting the the nerve to go and take this time to go get a degree in creative writing, that was what I think was where I had to overcome the fear. Once I was there, I knew what I was there for, and I wrote on my first novel, I wrote it every day, and I completed it before I graduated. I graduated with my book in galleys. Wow. I was on a mission. 
you were on a mission. And how did you get it published? It's it's such an uninteresting story. I I met um, a writer and I showed her my story, and she sent it to her agent and. The agent did what agents do. But the thing that I think about is that I didn't even know what an agent was and what an agent did. I remember that I wanted to send the book out, the manuscript out. And this is back in the days of paper. Yeah. And to send it out, you had to buy a a special box to put the manuscript in. And I could only find it where you could buy a box of 10 boxes. And oh. it was expensive. It was like $40. And I was trying to find someone to go in with me on a box of boxes because it was so expensive. And then I considered using the cereal box because it was the right <laughs> shape. But I thought... I thought this, That would have been funny. I thought the cereal box would make a bad impression, you know, with me being yeah, a... Yeah, maybe. Especially with me being a Southerner to send in. A, so <laughs> I, I splurged on the box of boxes. Well, you know, you could have thought I can save the other nine for my other nine manuscripts, couldn't you? You know, I never even thought of any more. But for years afterwards, I would meet people who who were working on a book and I would say, you don't have to buy the whole box of boxes. I'll give you one of mine. And I would (laughs) hand it to them like I was handing them this precious thing. And I would say, because they're four dollars, you know. (laughs) That's that's a really cute story. Um, So... um, so that that book went out into the world, and how did it feel then to be a published writer? You know, I think that for me, the moment wasn't even when I got the book published. The moment was when I printed it out. And this was back in the old days of printers when, you know, it would take so long for one page. And when all 212 pages were spit out of the printer, I, they were hot because it took so much out of the machine to print so many pages. And I remember having those hot pages in my hand, and I thought... I've done it. I'm a writer. I've done it. And this was before the box of boxes issue had even come up, but I just felt such a sense of accomplishment that no, nothing that has happened since then has ever felt as pivotal as when I was holding those hot pages in my hand. Mm, mm, that's a moment, isn't it? In, in the conversations that we've had with authors over the past couple of days or indeed over the year, that moment for them is a moment, but it's not necessarily the publishing moment. It's when they thought that they might have had the right book, when they thought that it was there, and and it's less about seeing the book in print, I think. By the time you've seen the book in print, you've been finished with it a year and a half or so. Yeah. So by then, the seeing it in print, unfortunately, starts to feel like just another step. Yeah. But those early stages when you, it's just you and it and you've done what you've set out to do, you just feel so pleased with yourself, so happy to be who you are. Yeah. Tell me about an American marriage. Tell me why you think Oprah chose it. Well, an American marriage is the story of a young couple who've only been married 18 months when the husband is arrested for a crime he does not commit. And it's a story of their marriage, the ways that it works, the ways that it doesn't. Just how do real people live their life in the face of grave injustice? And the big challenge for me writing it was, you know, you, you should write about people and their problems. You're always told you should never write about problems and their people. And with this problem they have of this wrongful incarceration, I had to work really hard to make sure that the love story between the individuals was more resonance than what happened to them. And I think it's that balance between the human content and the ideas and social critique I think that is the thing that resonated with Oprah because, you know, she likes a good book. She likes a page turner, but she also likes 
kind of like, you know, a party with a purpose kind mm. of thing. Mm. In, in thinking about, you know, where does a book come from? I mean, a lot of um, people talk about that there's a lot of truth in fiction and there certainly is a lot of truth in this book. You know, we, we, we're looking about there's all sorts of issues here. And do you think that that truth, like where did the seed of the idea come? Where did that truth come from for, for you? Well, I knew that I wanted to take it since this is my fourth. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Fourth novel, I yeah. wanted to start to write about something other than my own autobiography. I was yeah. kind of getting tired of myself. Yeah. And I wanted to try You're to... You're running out of stories really I, about yourself. Definitely. Because yeah. my life isn't that interesting, frankly. Right. <laughs> it's just not. And yeah. so I wanted to engage an issue of the day and I wanted to talk about the epidemic of incarceration in the States. And yeah. so it, it is an epidemic, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's stunning. I went so I went to Harvard for a year to do some research. I was awarded a grant and I did all this research on incarceration and I was shocked. I was appalled. Do you I was, some do you know some statistics about how many about the inequality of incarceration as well? Well like one thing for example, I mean a lot of people talk about the inequality of drug sentencing. So for cocaine for example, the difference between the sentencing for cocaine and crack cocaine, the difference in sentencing is, I think, like five to one. Wow. So you get five times as much, five times as much of a sentence. And it's just because of who uses the drug. People associate crack cocaine with um, black people in the cities, and therefore the penalty is so much higher. And so, so much of the prison system is about nonviolent drug offenders. So many people, and then even the epidemic of wrongful incarceration. Um, you know, there's an organization in the states called the Innocence Project, and that is all they do. They have branches in many major cities. That is their one full-time objective is looking into cases of people who have been wrongfully incarcerated. The state of Louisiana, where the novel, much of it is set, incarcerates a greater percentage of its citizenry than any other country in the world. It's extraordinary, isn't it? So I did this research. It's just so broken, isn't it? And I was mad. I was angry. I was outraged. But you know what? I wasn't inspired because I'm not an ethnographer. I'm not a sociologist. I'm a storyteller and I didn't have a story. I had a problem, but no people. And so I was in the mall one day feeling very discouraged because I've accepted this grant to Harvard and they would like me to give a presentation on my work. And I've done, I've done research, but I didn't have any, any writing, any creative work. I just had like, how do you know. get the human story out I had of a that. bunch of angry index cards and that's it. Mm-hmm. And I went to the mall and I observed a couple. 
The woman was beautifully dressed, beautiful cashmere coat. She looked fantastic. And the man she was with, he looked fine, but she really caught my eye, just so put together and glamorous. She did not look like the kind of woman who should be arguing with her man in the food court. But there she was. Mm. I'm not judging. It could happen to anyone. Mm. But I heard her say, clear as a bell, she said, Roy, you know you wouldn't have waited on me for seven years. And I was intrigued. And I looked at her and I looked at him and I didn't know him. I didn't know her. But I did feel fairly confident that that he would not have waited on her for seven years. What do you mean by that? Like looked after her? That he would not have. I looked at her. I said, I looked at her. She was so beautiful. And even, but he just, I just knew that I just could not see this man waiting for a woman for seven years. And then he looked at her and said, I don't know why you're asking me this. This wouldn't have happened to you in the first place. And I thought, he's right. It wouldn't have happened to her, but she's right. He wouldn't have waited on her. And that's when I got the idea to write about this young couple separated by incarceration and what then, how do you, how are you in a relationship with someone who's locked away? What is it right to expect of one another? Yeah. And it's not just the separation. It's, well, we, we, were you wrongly? But you know, I mean, that is the thing. I think for him, I think he feels like I was wrongfully put away. Therefore, you must wait because I'm innocent and there's a great moment, I think, when she says, but I'm innocent too. too. And what is it, you know, sometimes p- people say, oh, she's so selfish, you know, thinking of herself and her career and her life. But I think who is more selfish? Is she selfish because she wants to live her life or is he selfish because he doesn't want her to? And that mm-hmm. is really the question there. What, That's the human story. Yeah, what do we owe each other? What is it right to ask of another person? That's the real question. That's powerful, isn't it? I mean, it, I mean, I spent seven years because I kept rewriting the novel trying to answer these questions. And trying to get their relationship right. And trying to just figure out, I mean, I feel like when I would say to people, this is a novel and it's about a woman and her husband is wrongfully incarcerated, people would say, Oh, so this is a book that's all about her brave fight to free her man. And I would say, no, not exactly. And people would just, there was so much resistance to a story, a different kind of story. Do you know what, uh, and this just came to my mind now, but I remember when Nelson Mandela, and you will remember, was in jail. And she, she received a lot of criticism. For yes. not waiting for him. And how long was he in prison? 27 for? years. Exactly. Yes. And she was persecuted, I think, at the end. Well, you know, it reminds me. I know when she passed away, I felt like her great contributions had been almost forgotten because the fact that her marriage exactly. didn't work out. That's right. And that there were, and this idea that, I mean, there was one way you can be supportive, and that is through chastity. Like, yeah. it's such a. It's such a retro idea. In many ways, I feel like in my novel, Roy, what he wants from his wife is the same thing that, you know, Odysseus wants from Penelope to just be at home weaving. So in many ways, you know, and Odyssey was written, I think, in like 30 BC. So this is a story set in the modern day. And what he wants from his wife is the same thing as 30 BC. And... This story is as though Odysseus comes home from battle and finds not only has Penelope not been unweaving her tapestry, she's become a famous tapestry artist. Yes. And he's trying to figure out where is his place in her life, if any. Hmm. Is it ever going to change, do you think? 
You know, I think that the challenge with his expectations of her is because his he has suffered so much. It is very difficult to make a case for her autonomy in the face of his suffering. I think if he would say, gone to work in another country, like he was a hedge fund manager and his job took him to Singapore, I don't think there would be the same kind of expectation for her to wait. It would be one of those novels where the woman decides she doesn't want to just be a little wife, she wants to be free, and everyone would applaud her. Say, go girl, yes, get your life. But because in this case, her husband is suffering, it seems cruel for her to think of anything other than him. Mm. We never expect men to wait around for so long, do we? No, we don't. I mean, no. even the character, I, the people I overheard in the mall, yeah. when she said you wouldn't wait, he says, this wouldn't happen to you. He couldn't even conceive of it. He didn't even see that the question of whether he would wait or not wait, he didn't even think it was worth engaging mm. because it's just not the expectation mm. one has of men. It's a very, so this is what I was kind of trying to look at more than one thing at once, I wanted to look at the way that incarceration affects African-American men in particular, because that is also a gendered experience he has. He's been accused of a rape he did not commit, but also the way that her life is, sh is shaped by expectations and is of her as a woman. And how do the two of them find a way to be true to each other, but also true to themselves? Mm. So tell me, what does your mother think of your occupation now? She's delighted. I think that what I came to learn with my mother and also some other people in my life who are older than me, they were afraid that if I pursued writing, I would not be able to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. And they also, I mean, if you think of it, I'm born in 1970, just after the civil rights movement. So many people made so many sacrifices for me to have a shot at a decent, good job, a solid, respectable job. And so for me to say, oh, I think I'm just going to write, it felt like the possibility of downward mobility, of, of generational you know, decline. And so it, was, it wasn't that they didn't want me to be a writer. It's that they were afraid of me taking mm. this this chance. And now that I'm doing well and, you know, able to support myself, everyone is happy and everyone is delighted that I did not listen to them. And I also think on some level, to be an artist, I think it's good to have to overcome a barrier to it. Like part of what puts the steel in your spine to make you stay with it is what you have to do to earn the privilege of trying. Mm. Did you meet Oprah Winfrey? I did. I did. I've met her. I've met her twice and she's called me on the phone a couple times. She's a nice How does that happen? Oh, she's hi, a nice Oprah. She, oh, yeah, no, just out of the shower. She's a nice woman. Well, when she called me to tell me she had chosen the book, um So she called you herself? Yes, I think she enjoys that. Yeah. And she just called. I said, "Hello." Because it was a blocked phone number and I said, "Hello." And the voice came booming through the stereo. It said, "Hi, this is Oprah." And I had to pull the car over. I said, yes, ma'am. And she, you know, said she wanted to use the book for her book club. And I was just really touched by, and it made me think of other times this has happened to me, not involving Oprah, but she was lending her good name to my yeah. project. And I thought of all the other times when friends and teachers had, you know, vouched for me. Like, this is what the Oprah endorsement is. She's vouching yeah, for me. Exactly. And it just felt like such an honor and a responsibility. And I had so many feelings and I couldn't stop saying, oh my goodness, oh my, oh my goodness. goodness. <laughs> I mean, I've never even won a raffle. 
Yeah. Nothing like this has ever happened to well, me. Well, this isn't just chance, though. Remember that. I know. You know, it's completely... It's. I wrote, spent seven years on the book, but, you know, I've written other books, and this is just a, a different experience, and I feel I am trying to balance between f- having pride in the work I've done, because I worked so hard for so many years, but also just kind of marvel in the in the in the blessing of it as well. Mm, absolutely, I think you should own it. Thank you so much for coming in to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. It was fun. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play, or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.